Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We have a great example this week of somebody who recently adopted meditation and is putting it to use in a fascinating, fast-paced, high-pressure environment. Uh, Shiza Shahid is an entrepreneur. She's an investor. Uh, she's a speaker on on uh, issues around women's rights. Uh, she uh, is also a venture capitalist and is perhaps best known for having co-founded the Malala Fund with uh, Malala Yousafzai, who uh, was shot in Pakistan simply for attending school and went on to uh, win a Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, Shiza was, had a pre-existing relationship with Malala under some interesting circumstances that you'll hear about when, when, you, when we let her uh, tell her story um, and has really been with Malala um, at many key steps in her journey after having survived that uh, horrible attack. And, um, and Shiz's embrace of meditation and the ways in which she's using it, um, I found to be really interesting. Um, and, I'm, and also, she's just kind of impressive in uh, numberless ways. So without further ado, here's Shiza. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. It's such a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you. You're already making me feel bad that you've accomplished more in your early mid-20s than I have in my mid-40s, but... I'm in my late 20s. You're yeah. in your late 20s? Yeah. How old are you? 28. It's, okay, fine. Fair enough. You still accomplished a lot. Um, That's where I come from. People live shorter lives. So, relatively speaking, where... Where did you grow up? Pakistan. No, where in Pakistan? Islamabad. Okay. I've I been know there you many times, time yes. Yeah. Many, many times. I was... I... I I spent a lot of time in the, in the uh, Islamabad Marriott, which then got blew, blown up. Mm-hmm. Um, My sister got married there. Really? Yeah. It was a very nice place. It was. They had great Chinese food. They did. That's right. They had great Chinese food. Um, I remember I had never been to Pakistan. I didn't know anything about it. And then 9-11 happened, and I got sent to Pakistan, and I had I just pictured something very basic, you know, very kind of... I just didn't know what to expect. And then I show up, and the place I'm staying is the Islamabad Marriott, which, you know, it had elaborate chandeliers and fancy food. It was not at all what I expected. And they, with the joke about Islamabad is it's 15 minutes away from Pakistan. Yeah. I mean, it was carved out of essentially a forest, so it's pretty well manicured. Yes. But it's very sleepy. It's a very small town. Yeah. Not much to do. But nice. Nice. But when the McDonald's opened, it was the, <laughs> it was the biggest thing that happened there. So... So many things I want to ask you about because you're up to so many interesting things. Um, but let me just start with the question I always start with, which is how did you get into meditation? What kind do you do? So I'm still getting into meditation. But I was in New York and I was um, building a startup called the Malala Fund, which is a now global education nonprofit. And I was exhausted. I was traveling all the time. And I was surrounded by entrepreneurs who were kind of building companies as well. And we would share things that worked for us and having more energy and being able to be more present. And so I started to hear a lot about meditation. And my initial reaction was, that's not going to work for me. I'm way too ADHD. And the earliest types that I tried, um, I, I struggled with, especially, you know, focusing on the breath. It never quite worked for me. But I kept hearing about it over and over. And so it was something that was in the back of my mind And then this last December, 
I get very self-reflective at the end of every year. And I was kind of taking some time and reading more, and I just tried different types of meditation, and it started to stick. Um, you know, I, I did a lot with sound. I did a lot with body scans, and I realized that those just worked better for me. And so this year, I would say I've meditated, you know, almost every day. I'm not religious about it, but, you know, if I don't do it for a day, I definitely miss it. And I just kind of find time and use that to to do it for a couple of minutes. And sometimes it's 10 minutes and sometimes it's half an hour. And uh, I never thought I'd be just sitting and meditating for half an hour. So That's incredible. It's I a pleasant s- surprise. I have to say, you must be, I mean, formation of a, of a new healthy habit is a famously hard thing to do. So would you say that you're a particularly disciplined person or did you just find something that was working for you and therefore the rewards reinforce the habit? I'm very undisciplined. In <laughs> fact, that's one of the reasons I don't have a daily practice that I that I do at the same time because um, that's hard for me to convince myself of. I have to in the moment feel like this is the right time and this is how I'm going to do it today. But I think what happened was the initial times I tried it, the structure wasn't pleasurable in the least. And when I tried it later on with different formats, in particular with music or focusing on body sensations, which can actually be quite intense, um, there was an element of pleasure. And, um, And I think that a lot of people try meditation and they think it sucks and it's painful you know, and, and I believe this. I thought, you know, it's always, you just have to do it and then you feel the benefits afterwards. What I didn't realize was if you found something that worked and were able to get into the zone, it was actually very pleasurable. And once I found that pleasure in the practice, then it was something that I could keep going back to. And uh, what, what do you think you're getting out of it? Get with somebody with the intensity of your schedule and amount on your plate, the importance of what you're doing, what do you think you get? I think it helps tremendously with anxiety and um, with being able to be with yourself without needing to fill it, um, to fill the space with something, whether that's distracting yourself with um, television or food or people. I think when um, when you're running around a lot, you tend to get a lot of adrenaline highs all the time and that feels good but at the end of the day or when that adrenaline rush isn't happening can become very difficult to be with yourself and I think this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs face because it's always so high stakes and then when they pause um, there's this discomfort and they need to fill that discomfort with something and for me meditation allowed me to be with myself and find pleasure and calm without needing to fill it with something or someone. Um, and then it allowed me to really notice the thought patterns as well and to see how unkind I could be to myself, how judgmental, and how frivolous and uh, y- useless a lot of the thoughts that I was having were. Um, and so it allowed me to see some of the things that occupied my mind and the fears that I had um, a lot more clearly and then be proactive about trying to address those. You're, you are like nine months in and a great spokesperson already for the uh, for the practice. That's it. I mean, you just described what this thing does for you. Just You're less entranced, enchanted by 
this nonstop conversation you're having with yourself where you're just constantly, your ego's just giving you terrible ideas, you know, and and you therefore make bad decisions that aren't don't redound to your benefit. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a religious family, so my parents are practicing Muslims, and uh, they they prayed five times a day, and I always thought I was kind of crazy. I was like, you know, if we had to belong to a religion, could it not be one of those where it was, you know, two hours on a Sunday? You know, five times a day is an intense amount of of prayer, and I now look back at that and I think of the benefit of pausing five mm-hmm. times a day and reflecting and being at peace with whatever is happening and becoming deliberate about what it is that you're trying to create in your life. And I think that a lot of um, more secular societies um, are now trying to figure out what do we supplement prayer with um, or religion with. And for me, that was definitely um, something that, that was important. What's your relationship to Islam now, and what do you think your parents would think of you meditating instead of praying five times a day? I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I think meditation has roots in most religions, For sure. right? And uh, I think that, you know, the Sufi uh, branches of Islam had deep meditative practices. Um, I'm not. An, I'm just yeah, going to jump in for a second. They're, they're, I'm not an expert in Sufi Islam, yeah. but I believe they do this thing. Uh, they twirl. They Sufi yeah. dancing, and I, my understanding of that is that it does put you into a meditative state. The mm. the the twirling. Yeah. So there's meditative states and ecstatic states as well. Um, I think meditation is pretty uh, universal. I'm quite secular in my belief systems. I think, you know, um, there's value in all religions. Um, and it's it's kind of what you make of it, but um, but I do think that it's important that we have something that allows us to be spiritual and to be connected to something um, that's more meaningful. I love that you, know, you went through a process um, that a lot of people go through, which is you thought about meditating and then thought, well, I can't do that because I can't pay attention to anything that long. I think you said before. To ADHD, this is something I hear all the time from people. I, I would love to meditate, but I can't. My mind's too crazy. Um, I have a bunch to say about that. One of the things I have to say about that is that everybody's mind is crazy, and um, and that's just the way the human condition is. That's the mind evolution has left us with. Um, but I love that you actually investigated what works best for you. I don't know a lot about meditation with music, but I do know quite a bit just from personal experience about body scan meditation, which is where you kind of systematically pay attention to a parts of the body, kind of sweep through the body and feel the sensations that are there. And I'm speaking from my own experiences, it's a really powerful and kind of sometimes, kind of, as you said before, very pleasurable kind of meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there is something to what, type of meditation does your personality best react to? And I haven't heard much in this space, but I think there's definitely something to different forms for different people. And, uh, you know, for me, focusing on the breath, um, it's something I can do deeper into a couple of minutes of practice, but it's not something that worked for me or even today works for me instantly. And um, I wish there was a little bit more information on what types of meditation you could try based on what type of person you are. Well, like a good venture capitalist, you are identifying an opening, um, something that needs to be done. 
and I this this is absolutely something that needs to be done. I think it's true not only that we that different people take to different kinds of meditation, but you may take to different kinds of meditation at different times of the day and at different times in your life. So I have maybe like four or five moves that I make, and it really just depends on what time of the day it is and what's going on and where I am. And uh, I think it would be a really useful service to provide to people that you can come in, you know, maybe we take a look. I don't know what the metrics are. Like, well, do we look at your brain? Do we interview you? Or, or do we just have you try a bunch of stuff? But for sure, for sure you are onto something with that. There are a bunch of other things we could talk about as it pertains to meditation, but I do, I, I want to hear a little bit more about like what you're up to professionally and well, you've made some, you talked about the Malala Fund. Can you tell me about that? Sure. So, um, so I go back to how it all began. So I, I grew up in Pakistan, as you know, and was born into a pretty modest, self-made, traditional family. And my parents made the revolutionary decision to send me to a good private school. It wasn't that good, but it gave me upward mobility. I got to give things like the SATs and um, learned English well. Um, but I was growing up at a time when Pakistan had a lot of um, challenges. I mean, traditionally, it's, um, it has the second highest number of children out of school in the entire world. It's ranked the second worst place to be born a woman. But at the time that I was growing up, there was uh, rising violence, terrorism, it was a post-9-11 world, and I, at a young age, became very passionate about trying to make a difference and understand what was happening around me. So I kind of grew up in this weird activist childhood. I was volunteering in women's prisons, in refugee camps, in post-disaster uh, relief. You probably recall there was a very big earthquake in Pakistan, mm -hmm. and I was quite involved um, in helping earthquake victims afterwards. And then I became very active in protesting the then-military government, and, mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, I was there for that, I remember. The yeah, lawyers in the street. Exactly. Yeah. So I would, you know, sneak out to protests. and Sneak out? Yeah, my father was, uh, well, for one, they were legitimately concerned about my safety. And for another, my father had joined the, the Navy. Um, you know, he had been, he had lost his father when he was very young. And um, to essentially get an education, he joined the Navy. The cadet college is very young. And so he was, we were essentially not allowed to protest because of his job, because he served the government. Um, but they were very, you know, they were, they were, they didn't stop me. They told me not to do it. But when I would sneak out and they would find out, they would let it be. So, so that was my childhood. And, and I ended unusual up. Unusual parents, I'm sorry to interrupt you, I just want to point out that Pakistan is a very conservative society. My understanding, you'll, you'll correct me if I run afoul of the facts here, but in my, from what I can glean, having been there many times, very conservative, very religious, patriarchal. Um, and so to have parents who uh, allowed you to do what you were doing, that, that seems unusual. Yeah, they, um, yeah, I was the third, the youngest child, so they were mellow by the time I was growing <laughs> up. My siblings were older, they'd left for college. So, you know, they, they definitely did some things that were, um, uh, very forward thinking, like putting us in private schools when they couldn't afford it, and uh, you know when we could have gone to the military school, which was still pretty good compared to what most most children were getting access to. And then um, you know they they practiced what I call benevolent neglect. You know they didn't overparent me at all. They were like she's fed, she's going to school, she's safe, she's fine, and uh, you know 
in in the U.S., you see a lot of very active parenting with, you know, four-year-olds in private schools and violin classes. And, you know, I think what that allowed me to do is because I was um, on my own, I could figure out what I wanted to do and get out there and be a lot more entrepreneurial. But um, but when I was 18, I um, applied to college. I ended up getting a scholarship to Stanford. I didn't really know what Stanford was. I just knew there was one school in Pakistan I could picture myself going to, and I should probably have a backup. So, you know, applied naively to the U.S., ended up getting, um, you know, full ride to go to Palo Alto. And that was the first time I was really exposed to entrepreneurship in tech. And I realized that the challenges that I was trying to solve on the ground in Pakistan, brick by brick, school by school, you could do a lot of that sometimes more scalably with technology and entrepreneurship. And I also realized that while I was in the bastion of innovation, um, the people around me were not um, exposed to deep poverty. They didn't have the perspective of the world that I did. And so very often they were innovating for their own friends, their own social circles. So it was, you know, food delivery apps and dating apps and drones that deliver your tacos. I didn't make that last one up. Um, and so I thought maybe there's, maybe my opinion has value here. So I became very interested in this intersection, but at the same time, things in Pakistan were getting worse. And there was um, an insurgency in the north of Pakistan, in the Swat Valley, and a group affiliated with the Taliban took over. They became quite violent. They began to blow up girls' schools. And in January 2009, when I was a sophomore at Stanford, declared an all-out ban on girls' education. And so here I was at Stanford getting this incredible education and girls close to where I had grown up were being told they couldn't go to school. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something I can do to raise awareness because people didn't really know this was happening. Journalists were not able to gain access very effectively to the area to report on what was happening. And those on the inside had always been so isolated that they didn't really have the networks and the connections to get the word out. And so I ended up going back to Pakistan, and I created a secret summer camp in Islamabad. And I snuck out about 27 schoolgirls from the Swamp Valley to Islamabad. And I essentially had two goals. One was teach these girls to tell their stories effectively so that they can advocate for peace on their own behalf. And the other was make sure that the military, politicians, journalists hear these stories firsthand so that they know what's happening from a schoolgirl's perspective and will be moved to intervene and reestablish law and order. So Malala was one of those schoolgirls. She was 11 at the time that I first connected with her and 12 when she came to my summer camp. And then she was shot three years later. And I had graduated from Stanford by then. I had taken my first job out of college at McKinsey. I'd asked them to move me out to the Middle East. We should tell people what McKinsey is. So McKinsey is, um, you know, regarded the top business consulting firm. And I had no idea what it was before. Very hard job to get. It's a hard job to get. It was um, you know, something I didn't really know was a thing until I was graduating and I looked around for jobs and I realized you know, I realized a nonprofit sector doesn't value talent very highly. And I felt that if I could get a strong business training and then maybe a fancy business school degree, then I could combine my two worlds of impact and business and do something at the intersection that Stanford had taught me to, to explore. And I was a year into my time at McKinsey when Malala was shot. Um, and so, of course, I was personally very upset and went in to be with her and her family. And uh, miraculously, she recovered and suffered no brain damage. And um, 
As she recovered, I started to get phone calls from people, from friends in America and around the world who had heard the story and they wanted to help. And uh, so I went to Malala and her family and I said, you know, I think people want to help you. What should they do? And they turned to me and they said, you know, we're fine. You should tell them to help other girls who are trying to get an education. And so that was really the beginning of um, my own realization that what Malala had been through could be more than a day in the news cycle and that she wanted to continue to make a difference and there was an opportunity to take this and, and try and change the world in a positive way. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So tell me more about what exactly the fund does. Sure. So how it began was really, um, you know, I was 22 when Malala was shot and I started to help her think about um, there was, you know, there was interest in her story and I wanted to help her make sure that she told the story in her own words on her own terms. So I essentially um, started to advise them on, you know, being very careful and deliberate about what they said next and help them put in place, for lack of a better word, um, a storytelling plan. And we ended up putting out two books that became bestsellers and then a film that did really well and, um, you know, started as she recovered to be really thoughtful about going to a few specific places and talking about a few specific policy issues on girls' education, such as 
when 300 girls were kidnapped in northern Nigeria, we thought that would be a really important time to go and lend support and lend visibility. And so I was really helping construct this plan of, um, you know, what of how she shared her story and what issues um, we tr- we had a voice on that we thought we could authentically um, represent and um, bring deeper compassion and awareness to. And then as that story started to resonate, um, it was really striking how many people were moved by it. You know, and it was something where, you know, if you were a girl in Afghanistan, you identified with Malala. And if you were, you know, the parent of, you know, a kid in, like, the Upper East Side in Manhattan, you were like, you know, you should go to school. Don't you know Malala got shot for going to school? Like, it just had this universal appeal, right? And it really struck a chord. And so then the, the, the question was, okay, people are inspired. What are we asking them to do? And that's where the idea of the, of the Malala Fund was born. And I had no intention of doing this full time. I was just kind of doing this on, on the side and helping. And Malala and her father said, we're, we're not going to do this unless you drive it initially. Because in those early days, you know, they felt that I understood their culture and I understood the West. And, and there was this deep relationship of trust. And so, so I quit McKinsey, moved to New York and created this organization. And so what it does is it does three things. One is storytelling, so whether that's Malala's story or the stories of other girls who are fighting for education. Um, so really giving um, an emotional, personal connection to the, f- to the broad, faceless issue of, you know, 130 million girls are out of school in the world. Um, the second thing it does is it does advocacy around girls' education policy, so pushing governments to guarantee 12 years of free, high-quality education to all girls. And then the third thing is grant making. So providing grants to innovative organizations around the world, helping girls get access to an education. It's a lot. Yeah. How big an organization do you have? Um, Well, it's growing very rapidly. And, you know, I think the impact of the of the work has really been in in getting other people to the table to collaborate for girls education um, innovation. And, you know, two and a half years after I I started the organization, I was with Malala at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. And she was 17 and became the youngest ever Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, So it was really a transformative journey for me. I was 25. And after that, I realized that, you know, while I believe deeply in the importance of uh, philanthropy as a driver for social change, I was witnessing once again that the fastest growing solutions whether that was in education or healthcare or financial inclusion, they weren't being driven by nonprofits. They were being driven by entrepreneurs. And so that drove me back to the West Coast where I launched what I'm working on now, which is an early-stage VC fund that invests in mission-driven technology startups. And so are you still with the Malala Fund? I'm co-founder, um, and I'm a close friend and advisor and um, uh, cheerleader for the organization. The organization's thriving, um, has a great team, and uh, and is uh, gr- is all grown up, really. So, I mean, it's quite remarkable to have started an organization, see it get to maturity, and be able to leave with confidence that it will continue to exist. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, my my husband likes to joke that the first time I met him on our very first date, I was um, early in the days of the Malala Fund, and he said, what does success look like to you? 
And I said, well, you know, we want to make a dent on girls' education. And I promised Malal and her family I would do this until we had momentum. And so then later on that night, he was still pushing me on this. He said, what does momentum look like in, in an ideal world? And I turned to him and I said, you know what? If I do my job really well in 20 years, Malala will win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, and she won, I think it was about a year later. Um, wow. So, I, you know, it was a great privilege to be a part of that and, uh, and to see her doing so well today. But then to really be able to go out and invest in, you know, the other Malalas, other change makers that have big ideas to change the world, but knowing that their solutions are backed by market forces that allow them to scale. Because um, the nonprofit space, while I believe in its power and its importance, I think that um, it can really struggle to scale solutions. So tell me what kind of companies you're investing in now. So we're investing in you know anything that we think um, has the ability to scale rapidly and has an underlying focus on purpose and mission. So we just invested in a company called Lucy that is um, it's a marketplace for new parents, and um, it helps new parents book anything that they need in terms of support services other than the primary care physician. But, you know, the reason this is so interesting to me from an impact standpoint is, you know, becoming a mother in particular is still the number one reason that women earn 77 cents on the dollar. The U.S. economy was designed with mothers as the greatest subsidy. It wasn't designed for two people to be working. And almost always the woman's career suffers. And the fact is we don't know how to redesign the workplace for working parents. We know we should be doing certain things like providing maternity and paternity leave and flexible work, but we don't know entirely how to redesign it based on different needs of different parents. And so out in the Valley you now have you know companies like Facebook that pay for things like egg freezing. And that's you know a $40,000 to $60,000 procedure. Um, and it's great because some women want to delay having children, but not all women. And it's a painful procedure, and it doesn't always work. Um, and so this challenge of how do you provide the right support system, but do it in a way that doesn't assume that all women need the same thing. All women don't need to work from home. Some women need to get out of the home and be in the office because they have kids running around distracting them at home. And so how do you scale a new kind of workplace that is designed for women and for men who are parents. I mean, I see this a lot with my wife, who's a, f a extremely accomplished physician, but you know, tr finding the amount of flexibility, professional flexibility, in order to also, you know, do what she wants to do as a mom, it's just incredibly challenging. And I think this is a huge problem in, in our economy, for sure. And flex, flexibility is just the name of the game. But a lot of employers aren't set up to provide that flexibility. You know, it's really absolutely. tough. Absolutely. So, so, you know, all of that to say we would invest in anything where we think it's, um, you know, first and foremost, exceptional founders who have what it takes. Se um, second, it's something that's scalable and, and has the right market forces behind it and the right business model. Um, and third, where we think there is a fundamental impact or mission. And I think, you know, the broader conversation here is, um, you know, my generation wants to work for companies that give them a sense of, of purpose and meaning. They want to buy products that represent their values. And I think that we're seeing this shift in capitalism, which essentially is young people saying, 
you know, several things about how the economies designed today work fine, but several things don't. You know, so why, why should companies only be responsible to shareholders and not to other stakeholders? Why should wealth only be created for investors and not for, um, you know, all the people that participate in making a company successful? Why shouldn't an, a company be more sustainable if it can be? Why shouldn't um, companies be thinking about diversity from an early stage versus, you know, and this happens a lot in Silicon Valley when they're 300 people in and they realize that they don't have women with a seat at the table. Um, and so I think it's it's this broader conversation of what is important to, you know, my generation and, and to us in this moment in time um, in evolving the way that we do business and the way we invest and the way we consume and the way we work. We hear so much of late about uh the experience for women in Silicon Valley. What did your, as a young woman in a position of real, with a, you know, in, a, in, a, in the traffic, out there in the mix, doing interesting, important things, have you bumped up into problems? You know, Silicon Valley is a, it's a very homogenous um, ecosystem when it comes to who controls the wealth. And, um, you know, it's, it's something like 93% um, of partners and venture funds are, are male. And when you're investing, you know, I just spoke about how when we invest, we invest in a team. Um, and so it matters more than in other industries who has a seat at the table. My network has a lot of women and people of color because I'm a woman of color um, and because that's been my experience in life. And so it's just inevitable when you have a very specific background represented across the board in venture capital firms that you're going to end up with a situation where I think it's less than 5% of all venture capital goes to women founders. Um, and so, you know, and, and then that cycle continues, right? If you ask someone anywhere in the world to name a great entrepreneur, who do they name? It's Bill Gates, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's Steve Jobs. Where are the women, right? And so it's this cycle that is that is growing and perpetuating. And I think we need more women, more people of color making investment decisions in Silicon Valley, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because that's when you see innovation that serves a broader group, and you see better companies, and you see better returns. Do, given the, the, you know, breadth of your responsibilities, you're responsible to your shareholders, you have your own personal kind of hopes and ambitions and dreams, and uh, the pace of investing, I know I know a little bit about venture capital because my brother's a venture capitalist and because I have a startup where we have venture capital investors. So I have some sense of, of just a tiny sense of the pressures you must face. I'm just curious to see what, how, how is meditation showing up for you in this context and do, do you see room for it to grow in interesting ways in terms of how you do your job? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that meditation is helping me become a more conscious leader. I think it's helping me focus on being present with the entrepreneurs that I invest in so that I'm really there to be able to help them. And, you know, entrepreneurship is, it is brutal. Um, and so you see a lot of depression and suicide amongst entrepreneurs. So mental health is certainly something that's very important to me. I think, you know, and this is one of the things that I love about this show is um, when you go deeper into the underlying philosophy behind meditation, 
you come up with mental models that I think are, are really useful in shifting how you see the world and the things that you value. I think it was in one of the podcasts that you did where you talked about uh, the lack of self and, mm -hmm. and how the self is an illusion. Um, and, you know, that's something that I'll often come back to when I'm in in my practice and anxious about things that have happened or things that haven't happened that should be happening. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to get outside of this um, deep sense of self and all of the ideas and all the expectations I have around self um, that determine my own sense of self-worth. Um, so I think, you know, in addition to the practice, um, you know, I really enjoy the philosophy because it allows me to then link the two and say, okay, you know, what are the beliefs and values that I have come to associate so closely with that aren't actually true? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll bring that to mind and practice when, when I'm anxious or stressed out or unhappy um, and trying to overcome it with the practice plus the, the underlying philosophy. I think it's a really important point because, and again, I'm just speaking from my own experience, that I feel like there's, there's an enormous, um, a powerful interrelation, uh, a powerful relationship between doing the practice and then actually checking out what I call the intellectual infrastructure of the thing, the, of Buddhism, of Eastern spirituality, of, of spirituality generally. Um, and there's a way in which doing the practice, you know, sitting, watching your breath, getting distracted, starting again, or sitting and trying to pay attention to what your forehead feel like, what does your nose feel like as you do a body scan, and then you get distracted and you start again. There's a way that, that pra in which that practice can feel kind of dumb after a while. You know, you can lose sight of, why am I doing this? What is the point? Um, but touching, you know, listening to somebody... That's the point of having a podcast like this, listening to other people who are interesting, listening to teachers talk about um, the philosophy behind it is can really the two can really feed on each other in a powerful way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, two things I'd add. One is, in, and you talked about this a little bit, hearing the thoughts that other people have. I think very often we feel so alone in, in our madness and... <laughs> We don't talk about it very often in social settings. So hearing what other people are feeling and believing about themselves, regardless of where they are in life, right, regardless of how successful they are or aren't, um, everyone has the same fears and insecurities. And the other piece of this is um, becoming aware of your own mortality more often, right? I grew up with a deep um, awareness of death because of early experiences, and I think reminding yourself of the fragility of life and doing that, whether it's through meditation or um, just through conscious awareness of it, I think that's, that can be very powerful. And, and I know it's, a, it's an uncomfortable topic, particularly here where people don't like to talk about death. Um, but, you know, Steve Jobs said, death is the single best invention of life. Um, we're all going to die, so we're already naked. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that frame of mind just helps you live better. It's such a powerful point. It's a huge part of Buddhism, which is the, for me, I guess I would call myself a Buddhist. I mean, uh, and it's not, it's about turning into what we try to, we spend most of our time denying, you know, which is that we're here for a short period of time and we don't know when it's going to end. Uh, and uh, systematically kind of rubbing your face in that reality uh, can 
give you a massive dose of perspective that is really useful for everyday life. I was recently just going through some non-interesting thing professionally, and I was spending a lot of time wrapped up in it. And in the middle of that, every every week on Fridays, I go spend a couple hours at this hospice in New York City as part of this Zen Buddhist program that I'm part of, that my wife and I do together. And going to the hospice while I was worrying about some professional stuff is a great way to realize, oh, yeah, maybe it's not as important as I'm telling myself it is. So good on you. I think you're exactly right. Exactly right about that. I don't know a lot of venture capitalists who are thinking about death. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I come from a, a very different culture and now live in the U.S. And I'm often surrounded by a lot of privilege. And um, it's interesting how different societies value different things and um, undervalue others and how they think about the meaning of a good life. But coming from different cultural perspectives, it's something that has always driven me to think more deeply about what is a good life, what makes all of this matter. And um, if I have the privilege of, of living, you know, I'm, I'm 28 and I know that um, you, you and I were joking about how young that is. To me, that I, I feel like I've lived longer than a lot of people I know that had so much more potential and so much more to offer. So if you have the privilege of life, what do you do with it? What do you think is a – you predicted earlier – you said before you would have done your job if Malala gets a Nobel Peace Prize in 20 years. So you accurately predicted that she was going to get it. You were just off on the timing. You know What, what for you in 20 years would constitute having lived a meaningful life? You know, I, I always wanted to change the world in, in some way, and I think – when I was younger, that came from a sense of um, I only have worth if I've made a dent in the world. That's the only way that I can have value. And I think what it's shifted to is I'm so fortunate. You know, how many girls grow up in a modest family in Islamabad and get to do the things that I have done um, and be surrounded by the types of people that I'm surrounded by and have this access and have this perspective so I think it's more a sense of responsibility. It's to have all of this and to not do something that makes the world a little bit better. Um, I feel like I have a responsibility to do something that makes the lives of some people better or helps us in some way um, move forward. Um, and then I think it's about, you know, it's about connection um, with other people. Uh, you know, I come from a society that is quite, uh, it's very close-knit, and that comes with, you know, there, there's a social structure, everyone has a role. That comes with a lack of personal freedom, but loneliness is a lot lower <laughs> than it is here in, in the United States. And I think that there's a very um, significant loneliness epidemic happening in societies that are focused more on individualism. Um, but I think it is about, you know, I think a meaningful life is about making a difference um, and having deep connection. Um, and I think it's about having a value system that, that is important to you that you live by. And, and it's, it's not one value system, um, but kind of a true north. What, if people want to learn more about you, where, where can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter. So that's at Shiza, S-H-I-Z-A. Or I have a website, which is shazashahid.com that's my first name and my last name dot com that's really it just to 
echo or amplify something you said earlier about wanting to make a difference, uh, and that will have that will be the measure of a meaningful life. I mean, very obviously, you've already done that, and you're just going to do more. So, I'll be rooting for you. Thank you, and thank you for the work that you do to um, inspire and teach people about meditation. Uh, it's definitely helped me a lot, and I know it's helped a lot of other people. And uh, you know, um, going back to the story with Malala, I mentored her when she was twelve. I had no idea that seven years later. Six years later, I would be with her at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. And so all of that to say, you know, the impact that you have and the ways in which you change people and then they pay it forward, you probably have no idea what they're doing with it. So thank you. I want th- th- Thank you for saying that. Do I wonder if uh, we can get her meditating someday. Well, she's very, um, she's very religious, so I think she already has yeah. a lot of that practice built in. And I think that's a very significant source of her own strength. She is undeniably strong. Um, thank you again for doing this. Great job. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember... We're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.